Hello, and welcome to the Accelerated Culture Podcast, a sonic journey through the vibrant and revolutionary sounds of the 1980s and 1990s. In this podcast, my co-host Rob and I will dive deep into the era of new wave and alternative music, exploring the infectious beats, introspective lyrics, and groundbreaking experimentation that defined a generation and left an indelible mark on the music landscape. Join us as we unravel the stories behind the music that shaped an era. Welcome to the Accelerated Culture Podcast. I'm Lori. And I am Rob. Hey, fantastic first episode there, Rob. Thank you for doing that. That was a lot of fun. And then we had our live International Podcast Day that we did just a couple days ago. Oh, we got to play some great videos on that, too. I think we made some pretty wise choices in the long run. I think so. And thanks to everybody who tuned in and watched us making fools of ourselves. We're not usually on the uh, video medium, so that was something different. And thank you to everybody who downloaded and listened to the first show. Wow, what a, what a welcome that was. Thank you, guys. Yeah, the listeners have spoken. I think we're keeping you. They tolerate me. They really tolerate me. <laughs> well, hey, before we get started on this, I do want to give a quick welcome to some new listeners. Uh, Susan and her partner, Bruce, are going to be tuning into this episode. So hello, you two. Thanks for listening. Hey guys, how you doing? Susan and Bruce, yeah, y'all cool. Don't scare them off. Oh, but they can't see me. How can I scare them off if they can't see oh, me? Oh, okay, <laughs> all right, all right. So, hey, uh, tell us about the album that you picked this week. I have done it. This was a this was an interesting pick it, it, because we're doing 1988, and I looked. I was like, okay, what came out in '88 that really hit me? And this was the first title that really just jumped out at me. This is the first album, I think, that when I listened to it, it was more about the music than the lyrics. It really was for me. The The landscape that was painted by the music on this album was so beautiful that it took me about three listens to start going, oh, yeah, there's words, you know. I should probably pay attention to those. So we are doing, for this week's Deep Dive, Starfish by The Church. Now, how many times have you had you, you hadn't listened to this for a while when I chose this? Is that correct? No, no. I mean, the last time I remember hearing it from start to finish was when I was 16 working in a record store and we used to play this a lot. Yeah. So I picked it up, listened to it again, but I always got distracted. You know, I'd always be multitasking, doing something else. And so I have to thank you, Rob, because you really kind of forced me to sit down with my headphones and really just be present and listen and there is so much going on so many layers of sound to this album it's really just gorgeous so i guess i never really noticed or appreciated well this was their breakthrough album so just a little background this was their fifth studio album and their first since 1985 when they released heyday it was released February 16th, 1988 on Arista Records internationally, but in their home country of Australia, it was released on Mushroom Records, who I believe also, they were, that made them label mates with split ends at one point. So. so the album was produced by three different parties, Greg Ladanyi, who had worked with Jackson Brown and Don Henley, who of course just liked the church, 
Wadi Wachtel, who had worked with Warren Zevon and Stevie Nicks, just like the church. And of course, the church themselves were in the production room as well. The album was recorded in Los Angeles, and the L.A. lifestyle ended up influencing several songs on this album. The band was not happy there, and we'll go into that more a little bit later. The title of the album, Starfish, is a nickname for Donette Taylor, a friend and musical partner of lead singer Steve Kilby. Kilby contributed an untitled poem about her to the album Liner Notes, which we're not going to read because it's really, really long. Sorry, guys. I know you poetry majors out there are really broken about that. He also formed a band called Hex with her in 1988 after the release of this album. There were four singles released from this album, and it is going to be our pleasure to bring you all four of those along with the other six tracks. Hey, do you, do you know how they picked their band name, The Church? I do not. So it actually came from the David Bowie song, Moon Age Daydream. Oh, no kidding. That line about the Church of Man Law. I did and not they know that. Actually, yeah, and they actually used to call themselves, initially it was the Church of Man. But then they just shortened it to the church. You call yourself the Church of Man. People are going to think you're trying to, like, can I talk to you about the Church of Man? No, get away from You had mentioned that this was their breakthrough album. And in the United States, it was. But in Australia, it definitely was not. Well, that is true. International breakthrough for them. Yes. So they had some success, some failure, some success again. They had actually been dropped right before this album. They'd been dropped by Carrera Records. They had just come off of a tour in Europe opening for Duran Duran that I guess was not very successful. So they were dropped. They uh, had been in talks with Beggar's Banquet, the Rolling Stones label, who gave them an offer, but they kind of lowballed them. And then in swoops Arista Records with a really, really generous offer. So in particular, they seem to have caught the attention of Clive Davis, the founder of Arista Records, who kind of made them his pet project. But they had some stipulations. Stipulation number one was they had to come to L.A. to record. Everything up until that point had been recorded in Australia. Stipulation number two was that Arista was going to choose the producers that you just mentioned. That, as you alluded to, caused some friction, shall we say. So the church had been fans of, like, television, Patti Smith, Roxy Music, and these producers did not know the first thing about these artists. And so right away, there was some some conflict there. The band arrived in L.A. with three songs already written, Blood Money, Under the Milky Way, and Hotel Womb. The producers insisted that the band rehearse for a few weeks. And so they rented them a rehearsal space. Now, this was really interesting. Wadi hired a studio lot that was owned by film director Roger Corman. And they were actually practicing on one of his sound stages for several weeks, which I thought was interesting. So after a few weeks of rehearsals, they recorded at the complex in Los Angeles. Reportedly, Starfish cost $300,000 to make. And according to one Arista employee, the label spent over $1 million to promote the album. Money well spent. Yeah, you know, but it's interesting because... It's my understanding, and you know, I wasn't really familiar with their their other catalog prior to this. It's not really representative of their sound. It's really very heavily produced. I mean, it's a great album, but I think a lot of people maybe come to this expecting their other albums to sound kind of like Starfish, and they really don't. And I think part of that is a consequence of these uh, production decisions. Yeah, the band wanted to do something simpler on this, and ultimately they did get their wish, because I remember a long time ago, and I cannot tell you where I read this interview or even which band member it was with, but 
they said this was the first time we didn't just try to insert stuff. We're like, oh, this should have this. Oh, this should have this. We just did it. And it shows. Yeah, I, there's very much like a paired back kind of sound. And I think as we start to talk about the songs and kind of how they related to them being in Los Angeles, their experiences in America, there's a lot of empty spaces, which for the church was very unusual because their music was usually very dense. And I think that that's kind of evocative of what they were experiencing out in California with like the wide open spaces and also the kind of alienation that they were experiencing. So, All right, let's delve into it then. This first song was actually the third single released from the album. And while the album did only chart one top 40 hit in this country, they did release four singles off of it. Arista was very supportive of this album. This first song, opening the album, is Destination. What an amazing way to open the album, though. I mean, this just, like, kicks you in the teeth. The way it builds at the very yes. beginning and just all the layers building one little piece of it is fantastic. It just immediately you're in for the ride, I Absolutely. think. Absolutely. Gorgeous, gorgeous song. I found a blog from their guitarist, Marty, pardon me, former guitarist, Marty Wilson Piper, and... I've got a few of his descriptions of some of these pieces in here because the way he words it is certainly way better than anything I could have come up with. His notes on this song, this is what he says. The song takes you on a journey without moving, heading for a place you may not even be sure exists. Is it in the mind or is it real? It doesn't matter either way. It's as likely to be something mystical as it is something straightforward. But like all the best church lyrics, you're not sure where you are going or whether you've already been there. That, that's about as cryptic as the lyrics. <laughs> I was going to say, okay, so then I have a quote from Steve Kilby. Oh, let's hear it. It had this feeling of a vague journey towards some point in the distance, and it has this big cloud over it. I wanted to get the feeling of journeying towards that kind of foreboding place. Interesting. I like that. It's a good word, foreboding. I love that you found Kilby and I found Marty, and we're going to have very interesting point of view from both of them during the course of this. So one of the authors that I was reading has described Kilby's lyrics as musically direct, but lyrically obscure. And I think that's a theme that we're going to be returning to over and over for this album. That describes at least what? 80% of this album. (laughs) (laughs) Only 80. Okay. But uh, the thing that struck me immediately when I was listening to this is how there's two layers of vocals Kilby on top of Kilby, there's like one octave higher than the other. And the result of that is kind of almost this this dissonance, you know, this tension that's being created. 
I don't know. There, there's something about it. I, I, I think it's also the way that the lower register is almost kind of, almost kind of not whispered, but it's just, um, it's, I don't know how to explain it. It's like a very it, sing songs, but spoken voice over the yeah, whole yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So. I will say, I know uh, Kilby had one problem with this song. About four minutes in, just a little over four minutes in, there is a sound effect of a motorcycle revving. Kilby hated, hated this sound effect. It was Greg Ladani who put it in. And there was an argument, but Ladani refused to pull it out. It was basically the band wanted it to be simple, but this is Ladani trying to put in his little L.A. flash, and he refused to take it out of the mix, and it is still there to this day. Hmm. Interesting. So we've touched on the lyrics. We've touched on the sound effects. So one of the signatures, I think, of the church is that there's like a very stable bass line that really doesn't change. And then all the other instrumentation just kind of swirls around it. You know, it's I, I understand that this is something that Steve Kilby picked up from listening to Japan. I guess that was one of his influences there. But like in particular here, you've got Wilson Piper and um, the other guitarist. Peter Cops. Uh, Coppers? Co- uh, yeah. Cops. Um, co- cops. Okay. You never take me alive, Coppers. And... Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So like there, there's like these two different variations where they're both kind of weaving around each other. But it's like this unresolved tension. It never completely, I guess, never really comes together. And so it really kind of builds the the feeling because this whole song is just very, very tense and foreboding, you know? This is more of a personal note, but as I was reading through the lyrics again today, as I was, you know, refreshing myself over everything this morning, doing my last minute research, I'll be honest with you. I read through this lyric and I see my divorce. I really, really do. You know, in the space between our houses, the bones have been discovered, but our procession lurches on as if we have recovered. Oh, and especially this. This is one of my favorite lyrics in the whole thing, too. Our elements are burnt out. Our beasts have been mistreated. I tell you, it's the only way we'll get this road completed. I see a lot of, like, yeah, just same thing. Something foreboding on the horizon. And I wonder, at this point, I know that Kilby, I think, had broken up with one girlfriend and was seeing then Donette Taylor. So I wonder if some of that edged its way into the crypticism of destinations. Is that a word? Crypticism? Cryptic this? Okay. It is now? Okay. Yeah, that, no, that's really interesting. And I, to me, was I was listening to it, and I think that's the mark of like a good lyricist, right, is that everybody kind of brings their own meaning to it, you know, that it will mean different things to different people, but it still resonates with them. And to me, it was just kind of like, you know, we're, we're going through all these motions through life, but like, what's it all for, you know, if we're all just going to end up like the bones in the yard anyway, you know, just very nihilist. And yet at the same point, everything about it is beautiful. The whole sonic landscape that is painted, not only on this, but pretty much throughout the whole album. Oh God. Yeah. No matter how down it can get or how negative the lyrics get, it really does just keep the boat flowing down the river the whole way. Yeah. there. Oh, that's a good, good analogy. I like that. Incidentally, Steve has also said that if it takes him longer than 30 minutes to write the words, then something is wrong. 
Is that including joint smoking time for Steve? <laughs> Probably about 28 minutes would be that. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so he would like write all the lyrics like in one just kind of blast. And then usually they didn't get revised much after that. So there's kind of a bit of a spontaneity to a lot of it, which I think is a good thing. But then also, I think then sometimes we venture into things that are a little nonsensical, maybe not so much here, but yeah. And there's plenty to come. All right. So the next track is probably their most famous track. It was released as a single on February 15th of 88, the same day the album came out, I believe. I will check. I will check my notes on that. Okay. One day later, the album came out. Ah, okay. So this is Under the Milky Way. I think about the loveless fascination Under the Milky Way tonight Lower the curtain down Lower the curtain down on right I got no time for private consultation Under the Milky Way tonight Wish I knew what you Okay, so Under the Milky Way. This one, even though it was released in February, it really was kind of a slow burn on the charts. It took quite a while for it to catch on. I think it finally entered the Billboard Hot 100 on April 9th of 88. It went to 91. Eventually, it peaked at number 24 on June 18th. So the week of June 4th, 1988, Under the Milky Way was at 31. New Sensation by NXS was number 30. Beds Are Burning by Midnight Oil was 29, and Electric Blue by Ice House was 28. Mini Invasion. So all of a sudden, we seem to have this Australian takeover of the U.S. charts, at least this little corner of it, which I thought was very unusual. It was like that mini British invasion that took over the American charts in the summer of 85 for like 14 weeks straight. It was all British or British Commonwealth artists. That was number one. Yeah. Yeah. With it, I mean, they don't get a lot of crossover in this country. And I don't understand why there's some great Australian bands. So. Yeah. Well, this song was written in a place called Smith's Lake, which is on the east coast of Australia. Steve Kilby and his partner, Karen Jansen, were visiting his mother's cabin. And they wrote the song together on the porch under the stars. So she shares a writing credit on this one. Kilby had a demo, but Waddy and Greg didn't like it at all. They didn't think it was a hit. And actually, neither did most of the band. Nobody really seemed to like this one. But the band's manager, Lembo, sensed that there was something about this song that was different, right? Eventually, the demo somehow made its way to Clive Davis, who absolutely loved it. Dare Mason, the gentleman who would produce the church's later album Sometime Anywhere, told a story that he heard from Steve Kilby that the first time Mike Lembo heard the song, you could almost see the little dollar sign pop up in his eyes like a cartoon. <laughs> there you go. 
so this one, if I'm not mistaken, has some 12 string guitar chords. There's a couple songs on this album that are using a 12 string. Vocals very subdued. Uh, Kilby has said, I imagined myself sitting at the bar, everyone drinking. That was the place getting empty, right? The beginning, sometimes when this place gets kind of empty. And then I kind of have to wonder that line, lead you here despite your destination. Is that a callback to track one? I wondered the same thing after listening to the album as a whole, but I don't know. But what I read in my notes is part of the inspiration of this song was apparently a music and cultural venue in Amsterdam. It's called Melkweg, which is apparently, I'm probably mangled that word. I apologize to our hordes of Dutch listeners. I'm sorry about that. But it's the Dutch word for Milky Way, which I guess he used to hang out there a lot. So it's probably a combination of the two since, you know, Steve was constantly high. So, Right, right, right. Amsterdam. Oh, God, now, I, didn't even put, I didn't make that connection. Holy crap. Getting old. A <laughs> little slow there, huh? Yeah. So this is where I have to issue a, a retraction on behalf of the Accelerated Culture podcast because Trey and I had talked about this song in a previous episode. And I had asked about the middle 16 bars, the instrumentation. I said, that sounds like bagpipes. He says, no, 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 that's an Ebo. Well, guess what? It turns out it is bagpipes. It is African bagpipes being played backwards. They put it on just kind of uh, as a lark, and then they decided they liked it, so they left it. Now, there is an Ebo on the song, but it's actually in the outro. It's not that instrumental part and that's really the first time I heard it I'm just like what is happening here it was just so I don't know it for me it's like one of the most memorable parts of the song just because it sticks out so much well you know not a lot of bands have a bagpiper in (laughs) in their lineup these days well I think this was a sample that they might have had either for a synth or something like that it wasn't like a live bagpipe it was like a recording and then they they reversed it's it it's a bagpipe either way you don't get bagpipes in a lot of songs so you don't go out and see a rock band and they're like on French horn you know? <laughs> yeah that's true that's true so Wilson Piper has said that the song quote it's bigger than the band a song that people who don't even know the band know and I think that's true. I think people that don't know the church, I think if you play this song for them, oh yeah, the Donnie Darko song. So, and you I'm know, just I right, love I forgot Darko. about that. Yes. Oh my God. I love Donnie Darko. Steve Kilby has also said that he has lost count of the number of people who have told him that they have lost their virginity to this song. That weren't me. Mm. Nor I. S- Steve and I don't hang out, so I don't know. I have two more things written down about this. I don't know if Please. you have any of these. Uh, the drummer, Richard Plug actually had a very difficult time getting the percussion part just right. He tended to speed up everything in the studio. He didn't even know what he was doing, and he would just speed things up. So they actually had to bring in a session drummer by the name of Russ Kunkel, who had actually worked with a lot of the people that Greg Ladani and Wadi Wachtel, the producers, had worked with. And he was the one who filled in the drum and percussion gaps on that song. Oh, neat. I did not know that. And it was used in an episode of Miami Vice. It was an episode entitled Asian Cut, and it aired January 13th, 1989, one of two church songs used in that show. There's another song on this album that was used in a Miami Vice episode, too. Maybe we should just get to that song. Maybe we should. Do you want to introduce it? (laughs) 
Well, since the pressure's on and all. Track three on this album is called Blood Money. one i'm not entirely sure about i don't think it's a bad song but i don't it does not hit me the way some of the other ones do uh, apparently this one was rehearsed and restructured and just beaten to death in the studio by the time this album came out and you did mention it was one of the first tracks they had written and yet they still just kept working it and working it because either to them it wasn't right or the producers it wasn't right my money's on the producers I do think, though, if you look at the lyrics close enough, this is, I think, where they first take their few pot shots at L.A. The whole tawdry, you know, she's worth the ransom. Do you accept my card or can I pay for it now in cold, hard cash? Well, according to a Mushroom Records press release, the song is about a blackmail situation. Oh. And in a Rolling Stone interview, Kilby stated that it's about a politician being blackmailed by a prostitute. And I guess around this time, there was actually such a scandal going on with an Australian politician. So, wow, I'm surprised they had to go to Australia. Since they were in L.A., they could have got a politician here, I'm sure, who was screwing something up in 1980. Oh, Jeez. yeah, well, there's an author named Chris Gibson who also, he kind of agrees with you, I think. He says the song could also be interpreted as a commentary on exploitative commerce, relying blind with dollars, in a city where greed and opportunism are ubiquitous, it's flowing under the land like blood money. So I think it is simultaneously, it's a comment about L.A., about the record industry. Uh, I think there's a lot of stuff that's going on here. I don't think it's a bad song. It just, I think you can tell that it was one of those songs just over and over again because by the, but it's there, but the, I don't think the energy is there as much on that song as it is on some of the others. I think you're right. I think you're and right. I think it. I think it's because of that, because it'd been, you know, just so many times rehearsed and restructured. So, and then there is the guitar solo, which is again, how do you say his name? Cops. Cops. I, I believe it. I'm. We don't talk. Um. I okay. Think it, I I say Peter Cops. I'm sure he'll come after us if we're wrong. Okay. Well, band's big fans of this podcast. So. so so his guitar solo I have here in my notes restrained that it is a restrained guitar solo. And it really is just kind of very simple with like just a few notes. It's just very understated. So. Well, again, the band had said they were going for more simplicity on this album. Maybe that's part of it. And again, you know, just like with Destination, though, 
it's like there's this tension that builds and there's no resolution to it, you know? I can see that. Oh, and here's our other Miami Vice episode. It was aired November 18th, 1988, entitled Heart of Night. Heart of the Night. Mm -hmm. A lot of this occurred because, this is a complete side note, Miami Vice changed their music supervisors after season three, and the new guy they brought in went a much more dark alternative direction than the previous music supervisor had done. So you started getting songs like Fly on the Windscreen by Depeche Mode, stuff from Shriek Back, and songs here from the church in the episodes. That they made a killer royalties there, huh? Blood money. Oh, nice. <laughs> good, good, good. I didn't catch that. <laughs> okay, so next up we have a, another track that Steve Kilby actually thought could have been the lead single, and that is Lost. Sometimes I wonder under prehistoric skies, I feel it so big. Lost. Lost. Interesting lyrics. Here she comes with the penetrated stare. Here she comes with her unforgiving web. Now, I don't think I'm, I'm not going to deny they're interesting, but to me, a lot of this song, and again, I, I do not think this is, a, I don't think there's really a bad song on this album. This sounds cool. The pursuit of adulation is your butter and your bread. It's an exquisite corpse and its lips are red. It all sounds good in structure. It sounds very clever. And yet at the same point, this whole song to me feels like Steve Kilby writing clever stuff for the sake of nothing more than writing clever stuff. Oh, yeah. It's a word salad, especially that whole thing with Exquisite Corpse. I mean, when you and I were listening to this and I think I'm like, I don't even get what that reference is in there. I mean, that was that was a game that was played by the surrealists where they would be writing a story and like one person would write like a line or a sentence and then they'd cover it up and then they'd give it to the next person and they'd write something and you know it, it, eventually a story would be revealed maybe that's how he wrote this song maybe that's why the lyrics don't make any sense but you don't usually play it with yourself you usually play it with other people so I don't know remember kids whatever you do don't play it with yourself I yeah just some of the if you're alone and you're feeling blue everyone in Persia probably feels like that too what? What? Yeah, it does. Persia anymore, Steve. It does seem a little forced. Wasn't there another album they did that uh, has references to Persia? If they're making a reference to Persia, I don't think it's because they yeah. particularly care about that section of land. It's the mystique that the name Persia brings up in your mind of, you know, flying carpets and Shahrazad and things like well, it's that. It's also a, a beautiful sounding word. It's just it kind of rolls off the tongue. It's very lush, Persia. You know? <laughs> Persia. 
some people have speculated that this song is about the band's loss of direction and cohesiveness. They were feeling lost and pulled in a bunch of different directions while they were recording this album. That's possible. It certainly could be true. We know that each producer on the outside of them, besides them producing, certainly each one trying to go a different direction, each one on the band about certain aspects that then the other person would come in with the other aspect. I'm totally explaining this poorly. Basically, no, not at pulled, all. pulled in one way by one producer, pulled another way by another, and they still have to try and maintain their own identity as producers as well. So I don't, maybe that's, I don't know, maybe that's why it's more vague. But again, the music, absolutely gorgeous. But yeah, it just feels like it, it ambles a little bit. Yeah, I, I agree with you. It's lost. Hey, all right. What's next? Now, if you now, of course, you know, we like to talk about sides, like we're still listening to LPs or cassettes. Those are these other things we listened to back in the day, kids, before you could just download everything. This is a great way to end side one, I think. This is a powerhouse of the song. It is entitled North, South, East, and West. The real estate's prime, the number plates rhyme. We're gonna be proud with their breasts unallowed In this city Dream of the scam and raking the clams I love this track. I love that this end side one, it is such a blast to go out on. This is, I think, the first song that is absolutely straightforward about the frustration that Steve Kilby and the band are feeling in Los Angeles. It just oozes out of the lyrics everywhere. I think you're right. So the music was actually written prior to their arrival in L.A., but the lyrics were written while they were in L.A. The interesting thing about the lyrics, and I think you and I might have talked about this when we were listening to this, Every pair of lines exposes some kind of contradiction. You know, wear a gun in the crowd, but bare breasts aren't allowed. You know, it's, it's all the contradictions of of L.A., of, of city life, and, and in America. I mean, not just L.A., but just America in general. We are a mess of contradictions. Oh, yeah. And, the yeah, this whole thing is just a slag against that lifestyle. Have a quick throw or host your own show from a wolf well, to a wolf from a lamb for just half a gram. Just mm. the big white mountain of Los Angeles, which is apparently where Greg Ladani lived his life. So, yeah, I, I honestly, I'm glad you said that the music was written beforehand because I honestly wondered if some of the the more driving guitars and the edginess of the song was just a further statement of how much they really did not enjoy the LA lifestyle. So that that I have learned. Thank you very much. The more you know. <laughs> So um, I think we've got Wilson Piper on a 12-string Rickenbacker guitar on this. And you mentioned the drummer, Plug, right? 
one of the authors I was reading, uh, this really interesting take on the drumming, he was saying that it adds a crucial driving feel. It's regular offbeat rhythm, almost like car wheels bumping over the joints in freeway concrete. Who is this author again? I'm sorry. Chris Gibson. Chris Gibson. Okay. Chris Gibson. His quote is very similar to guitarist Marty Wilson Piper's quote for this, which I will, again, I will feed you because Marty's got away with words way better than I do. We didn't need to invent a fantasy world. We were living in one. Truth was stranger than fiction in this bizarre circus called Los Angeles. City of angels, but angels with distorted plastic faces and questionable values. A city of six-lane freeways, endless traffic jams, choking smog, and unbearable heat that turned an icy chill in the night. Clearly, you don't have to be in the band to know they really did not enjoy Los Angeles. <laughs> Steve Kilby also said a few years later that it was about more than just Los Angeles. It was also about the band itself, four members moving in different directions. You know, the word that comes to mind listening to side one is cinematic. It's like every single song on side one is building like scenery and, and a set and it, it's like larger than life and you're getting this feeling of place. Oh, I just, my train of thought derailed. <laughs> well, I think we're about to flip the album over. Uh, I know. I'm just, well, I thought I had something good. I guess it was that good. I don't remember it, right? It just... I love the way this ends side one. It just takes you out with a bang and just prepares you for side two, which for once is not really so much the cool side of the album this time around. There you go. So now we are on side two. Now, you know how I was saying side one is really cinematic. It's about like places. It's about universal experiences. I really feel that the songs on side two are much more intimate. They're, they're much more of a personal nature. It's one of the reasons what you're describing the music on through side one is one of the reasons I use the word landscape when I when I talk about the music on this album. It really does paint a sonic landscape of dreams and hopes, and yet at the same point, the 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 gritty underbelly of it all. So the first song on side two is called Spark. Saturated Wet with your tears You spill so easily In reflection I'll see you again Approach me Spark. So this one, you actually educated me as to this one. This is uh, not Steve Kilby singing. Nope. Uh, twice on this album, some of the other members got to take the front and get on the mic and sing. And these songs are also their compositions. In which case, this one is written and sung by the guy I've mentioned several times, guitarist Marty Wilson Piper. 
Now, he's described it as a new wave song, pop punk like the jam. I think it sounds country. <laughs> I don't know, but I, I really do like this one, actually. Yeah. I like what Marty's done here. It it feels very different compared to that landscape we talked about on side one. But at the same point, it really does open side two with a bang, I think. I tend to think that this is maybe one of the weaker tracks, but a weaker track of 10 really good tracks is still, you know, they can't all be tens, you know, one or two of them have to be a nine, I guess. Right. I think I like this one because it's the first one that really shows more positivity to it. I think than the rest of it, because destination, okay. you don't know where you're going under the Milky way feels kind of lonely. This one is just, this relationship has grown somewhat flat, but it just needs a little something to fan the flames. It doesn't need an entire reconstruction. It just needs that spark. So it's hopeful. And I like that. Yeah. I like that theme. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's all I got on that one. Honestly, Marty can, Marty can belt pretty well. He's a, he's a pretty decent singer. Anything else on Spark? Nope. It. Uh, I think we got all the good stuff. You found the, the Marty quote that I decided to leave out, so that filled in all the blanks on that. Okay. All right. You're next. Continuing through side two, we come to the fourth single from the album. This is entitled Antenna. Why do you always wrongly assume That you're so well aware of what's happened there Right here in this room You're just an antenna You're just a wire there's a thousand tongues wagging in your ears tonight And you turn around and you call me a liar Lovely babe, hold the fine, life's kind of fine You should stay out my way It's the pulse I am aligned to Now, for you kids in the audience, uh, an antenna is a big metal stick we used to have on our houses and radios to pick up all the little happy sound and video bits going through the air. That's what an antenna was. Not It wasn't a thing on a bug. It was, it was a big metal stick. Thank you. You know, the first few times I listened to this, I kept saying to myself that there's something about this song that it doesn't fit with the others, and it finally dawned on to me. It's the time signature. This one is in three-fourths time. The other ones are four-four. Yeah, Marty said that one of the reasons the whole band liked it was because it had that waltz rhythm to it. Oh, goody. We can waltz to it. It's your feet, honey. So you had First. mentioned you had mentioned um, that this was released as a single. Uh, October of 1988, at the time, the band were touring Europe, and they were just about to return to North America for their third time. And this didn't even make the top 100. It's like the world had already forgotten about the church and moved on. I mean, musical tastes were really starting to change around this time. We were starting to see the advent of grunge. So, I mean, it really, I don't know. They, they, they came around at a very, very strange time, didn't they? It's a shame because Under the Milky Way ended up being their only Hot 100 hit in the U.S. And the other three singles off this album were all sterling choices for release. They really were. Yeah. Well, one of the lyrics of this song is about eating humble pie. 
and I kind of suspect that maybe the band were a little bit after after the song came out. Any thoughts about what the song is about? I don't. I I've, I I read it this morning. I read it over and over again. Yeah. And I just I cannot translate this into something I can understand. And yet at the same point, I love listening to this song. Just the sound of it, the chord, everything is just so wonderful in this song. And again, like you said, the, the time signature is really fun to, to mess with there. It it adds something to it. Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> There's a lot of speculation. And, you know, Steve Kilby's kind of obtuse about a lot of his lyrics. But um, Steve's biographer, Robert Dean Lurie, was speculating. So while the band was in L.A., and Steve Kilby was hooking up with Danette. He still had Karen Jansen waiting in Australia, and they had kids together, and they were still in a relationship. So he was kind of carrying on the two relationships simultaneously in two different hemispheres. And Robert Dean Lurie suspects that this song is actually about Karen in Australia suspecting his affair with Danette in L.A., why do you always wrongly assume that you're so well aware of what's happening there right here in this room? Why are you jumping to conclusions and assuming that I'm having an affair with this woman? That is and a then, fantastic interpretation. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, that's okay. And then there's, um, you're just an antenna. You're just a wire. There's a thousand tongues wagging in your ears tonight and you turn around and call me a liar. But it's also ironic because, well, you kind of were. Yeah, especially you mentioned the one line, you eat humble pie and it tastes of the road. I'm out on tour. I'm not doing anything. Mm-hmm. Wow, it puts it all into perspective. Also of note, uh, the mandolin on this record is played by a musician by the name of David Lindley, who had also worked with Jackson Brown in the past, and it was probably his connection with Greg Ladanyi and Waddy Wachtel that got him on this album. Unusual choice, but I think it fits with this song. The band loved this guy. <laughs> Yeah, they did. They were very happy to have him there. He had worked with a lot of people and they loved having him there. That's cool. All right. Shall we move on? Let me flip my paper over. Oh, boy. Here we go. (laughs) Now we're going to start kicking into high gear again. Yes. Okay. So the next one, this was, I think, one of their better known songs. One of my favorites on the album. This is called Reptile. Second single from the album should have been a hit. Yeah, God, I don't know how radio ignored that song. Well, you know, again, I think it was just bad timing. I think you know, musical tastes were were changing. But oh my gosh, I love the 
what's the word I'm looking for? The, the metaphor. I see you slither away with your skin and your tail, your flickering tongue and your rattling scales like a real reptile. You almost have to wonder if this is also about the girlfriend waiting in Australia. It may be. Go now. You've been set free. Another month or so, you'll be poisoning with your lovely smile. This did okay on the Billboard mainstream rock chart. It peaked at number 27 there. This was about a year before Billboard introduced their modern rock charts. So everything just kind of trickled into mainstream rock back then. Mm-hmm. So apparently there was a lot of, uh, a very collaborative writing style taking place with the band. And Steve Kilby said, Marty came to us with the riff and I just picked up the bass and started playing and we all piled in. So it really was a collaborative effort. But there's a really interesting story about what might have inspired this song. And uh, I know you came across this too. Do you want to relate the story or do you want me to? Although you go ahead. You go okay. ahead. Okay, well, so apparently when he was hanging out at a, uh, after a show in L.A., uh, Steve Kilby got propositioned by a woman who he described as a big cowboy type. So that's an interesting visual he went home with her you know fully intending to do the deed and i guess he excused himself to use the washroom and he heard some scratching behind the shower curtain so he opened the shower curtain and apparently there's this gigantic lizard staring back up at him scared the hell out of him and he noped right out of there and he later said in an interview that this may have inspired the song now do we take him seriously I don't know. I, he tends to me to be kind of the unreliable narrator. I still think that story is so ludicrous it has to be true. Yeah. <laughs> Especially he, I, the, the, the version I read, even remember, like, the, like I think he said the woman named the name of the lizard, like, oh, I see you've met Bruford or whatever his name was. And he's like, yeah. <laughs> you you mentioned, the, anyway, go yeah, ahead. I was going to say, never let the truth get in the way of a good story. You had mentioned earlier that this was one where the band was all working together. Marty also had a quote about that where he said, sometimes a song can mainly be one person's idea augmented by everyone else. Other times a song is really the sum of the parts working magically together. And that was the case with Reptile. Yes. And it does. This one should have been a lot bigger. It should have been a lot bigger. That riff is so catchy and so killer. It is. It's really good. It's really good. You know, I like this one. Yeah, I would have liked to see this gone higher. I was really surprised because when the second single came out, I was like, oh boy, oh boy, <laughs> nothing. <laughs> Just dead silence from America. I'll tell you, between you and me, Americans do not like smart music. If, the, if you have to think about the lyrics, they don't want to hear it. So just my opinion. Okay. Not all I'm Americans. Not dis- I'm not disagreeing. I'm not disagreeing. Do we have any more snaky things to say? No, no, I don't. I mean, I could just rave about this single all day, but I, there's not going to be any more details other than me going, oh, boy, it's awesome, you know, so. There's there's like a, a sound effect somewhere in there that's almost like a rattling that's like, it just, it just fits, you know? It just fits. No, that single is literally all the parts working together in absolute, it is fine engineering is what it is. Yes, it is very good. It is very good. We are now up to the next song on the album that was actually not sung by Steve Kilby. This is written and sung by guitarist Peter Copps, and it is called A New Season. 
I, I'm going to be honest. I have no idea what's going on here. <laughs> Just... oh, I, I like this one. But, you know, this could almost be an Echo in the Bunnymen song. I mean, it would not be out of place with Ian McCulloch singing it. It really wouldn't. I understand that this was actually originally intended to be a lot slower, a lot moodier, and the producers had their way with it, sped it up a little bit. I like the album version. Apparently, when they're performing it live, apparently they do like a slower version that really, I guess, resonates with the fans, but I have not heard that. The lyrics on this one just are amazing, though. The opening lines, shaded crystal water bathed in by God's daughter. And then later we have sensory gifts to all who come. Soak up the stars and setting sun. It's like a palate cleanser, kind of, from the previous song. You know, the previous song, we've got Reptile, you know, which is kind of icky and dirty, and now everything's clean, washed in the shaded crystal water. There is this weird line, though. It's strange and wilder. Ageless be childer. What the hell is a bechilder? He is making up his own words. There is no such word. It's just something for the rhyme, I'm sure. I spent 10 minutes looking that stupid word up today. Oh, I could have told you immediately there's no such word. Oh, I figured it out real quick. Yeah. I don't know. I Like I said, I do not hate a single song on this album, but this is the one that just, it, it has the same musical qualities, but it doesn't quite fit for me. It feels like this is Steve Kilby throwing Peter Copps a bone on the album. Because at this time, Peter was starting to become a little disenfranchised with how much creativity he was actually putting into the band versus how much Steve was doing. So, I don't know. It, it, it just feels like Steve going, okay, Paige, here you go. Oh, well. Again, again we differ because I like the Marty cut. You like the Peter Kopp's cut. It's just a matter of different taste. That's all. Okay. All right. But it is funny that I think both of us picked the ones that aren't sung by Steve Kilby as the weak points of the album. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I wonder why that is. I wonder if they were just kind of neglected, not not really given the same attention as the others. Or When you don't have Kilby's voice there, I think some of the hypnotic effect goes out of it. Oh. Because he does have that kind of droning yet musical quality to his voice. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. It's almost like part of the dream itself. Ooh, I like that. All right. Well, we've got one track left. Ring. Yes, the uh, the cleverly named Hotel Womb. Volcano pierced the air. Ashes block out the sun. great play on words that is i stay in my hotel room when i'm hunting wabbits ah. 
You just killed it. <laughs> you just killed it. What did I kill? My food. Oh, sorry. So, you know, the first time I listened to this, I thought, oh, well, this is clever. You know, the hotel room being a womb, being safety. But then when I really started listening to the lyrics, it's like, what is happening here? I what what were you and I talking about when we were listening to this? It was like like we some kind of Lovecraftian horror or something is what we were coming up with for this. I yeah, this song is a is a really interesting way to end the album. It's almost like a dreaming life versus a real life, and which one is the safer of between the two almost. Like like the dreams call to adventure, but reality says come back to safety to Whoa. the safety of the hotel womb. Or maybe, you know, it's, it, the whole womb thing isn't just only a hotel room, but it's like that last bastion of safety before you're thrust into the outside world, that that illusion of safety that exists in that room or inside the womb that you don't get once you're out and, you know, the world can just pummel you with everything it has. That was really deep. But um, Did I oh overthink it? No, not at all. I, that was just really profound. I need to sit with that for a second. The, the, God, the lyrics of this, though, are just so creepy. You know, morning comes at last and she's lying by my side. She's got the face of the widow who keeps following me and the body of my bride. I say, why are those buildings swaying like trees? I say, can we stop for a while? She says, can't you hear the city that's hidden in there? It's just another mile. And that's how the song ends. Some weird, like, gothic horror kind of tale going on underneath the surface there. I think Steve's dreaming about the Waiting for the Night Boat video by Duran Duran. Hey, there you go with the oatmeal people. <laughs> a sudden voltage in the night with a rainforest girl as we float downstream to the Amazon River where the black waters swirl. I do like that line, sudden voltage in the night. I like that. I mean, that it, yeah. could be loaded with meaning. So many things. Oh, yes. Is it lightning? Is it sexual magnetism? You know, is it Marty's spark? <laughs> so, wow. What an underrated album. I mean, thank you again for making me listen to this. I mean, you can't make me do anything, but... You know what I mean. I mean, encouraging me. You encouraged me to listen to it again. Like I said way back at the beginning, this is the first album I think I ever listened more to the music than the words the first few times through. Usually I was very much about lyrics and the music. Hopefully it was good and at least passable. But this one, when I, the just the way Destination built up, I knew I was in for something. So Yes. And you really have to listen to this on headphones. You really do. Otherwise, you're missing, I mean, just the gorgeous interplay between all the instrumentation and all the layers. So despite all of the conflicts between the band and the producers, I think what they ended up with was, I mean, it was a diamond, you know? It it, it has not been replicated before or since, you know? No, in fact, it's interesting because the next album that came after this, Gold Afternoon Fix in 1990, the sound of the band was very completely changed because somebody stole Marty Wilson Piper's 12 string. Really? While they were on tour. So he didn't have one for Gold Afternoon Fix. This is why songs like Metropolis sound so different than they do than the ones on this album. 
How interesting. I did not know that. Last question for you. What's your favorite track on the album? That's that's actually pretty tough. I mean, there's so much goodness here to choose from. But honestly, as much as I would like to say Reptile, I'm going to go with Destination. That is the, when I first bought this on cassette back in 88 and I slapped it in my Walkman surgically attached to my body. And that buildup came up. That hit me like a 20-pound sledgehammer. I, so I'm going to go with Destination. Good choice. Good choice. And what about you? I would have immediately said Destination. Oh. Wouldn't have even had to think about it. There you have it, folks. We agree. Yeah, so there you go. But no, I, you know, Under the Milky Way is a close second, which is really kind of ironic when you realize it almost didn't even make the album. And that, that really is their signature song. Thank heavens for Mike Limbo and his dollar sign eyes. There you go. All right, so we're coming back in two weeks, and we are breaking with the chronology a little bit. And I thank you, Rob, for letting me move away from 88 we're going back to 1985 but we're going somewhere so beautiful for this nice wonderful spooky season yes because halloween my favorite time of year is upon us and so we are going to do an album deep dive on one of my all-time favorite albums dead man's party by oingo boingo this is very much i think the band hitting their commercial peak yet still managing to keep their own identity without becoming overproduced or too slick in the scheme of things. So thank you again for listening, for joining us on this Sonic journey. Yeah, not just our Sonic journey, but the whole album's Sonic journey, which I hope if you've never listened to this album as a whole, please go seek it out. I think you'll really enjoy yourself. So we'll be back in two weeks. It's a goodbye from me. And a goodbye for me. Until next time, everyone, keep reaching for the ground and put your feet on the stars. Bye.